Oh, but it, it's Diana Cook. It's very simple, right? So in a functional language, <laughs> yeah, who am I to say that, right? Who are you? Uh... Welcome to the last Arraycast of 2021. My name is Connor. I'll be your host. And today we have with us Bob, Adam, and Steven. So we'll go around and do brief introductions hop into a few news items, and then hop into a discussion about tacit programming for the fourth time. And we've got a special holiday gift for you. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL programmer from way back and currently the KX librarian. I'm Adam Blotsevsky, full-time dialogue APL programmer. And I also spend a lot of time teaching people APL. I'm Bob Terrio, and uh, I'm a, a J enthusiast, and I'm currently working with people uh, developing the J-Wiki, which is a very challenging project, um, but we're also learning a tremendous amount, and hopefully in the new year we'll, we'll see a few changes there. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I'm a professional C++ developer, but as any of the regular listeners know, I'm a huge APL and array language fan in general. And so, yeah, I think we have uh, three announcements. We'll go to uh, Bob with his announcement first, then hop to Adam, and then we'll finish with Stephen. On December 17th, uh, which was the 101st anniversary of Ken Iverson's birth, um, the new version of J, uh, it became no longer a beta. It's now actually uh, an official release. So 903 is available with all its little... Uh, changes and adjustments and more powerful things you can do in terms of tacit, which is certainly appropriate. Um, so if you are interested in J, it's a good time to load uh, 903 and find out all the things that you can do with it. And uh, we can put links up to uh, the J uh, software website and all those kind of things to find out where to go do that. And uh, that's the announcement. And uh, apparently, according to Eric, it was a coincidence. I have my doubts, but in any case... December 17th, we also got a chance to celebrate Ken's 101st birthday. I just want to uh, put the word out there that the opening for submitting your um, ideas, concepts, proposals for a, a common logo for all of APL uh, closes at the end of the year. So that will be another week from the release of this podcast episode. We'll put a link to the APL wiki page where you can submit or see the current um, proposals. You can also comment there on the existing proposals. And I'm sorry to announce that for the second year running the IP Sharp Associates London office Christmas party uh, will not take place, of course, once again, because of the pandemic. For those of you who are, are find it puzzling because uh, because IP Sharp Associates disappeared into Reuters in 1987. It's just worth noting that the Christmas parties never stopped. That was one amazing company to work for. Uh, the, the parties never died. That's pretty impressive because that's what? That's over 30 years ago now. Um, uh, that's almost, is that longer than IP Sharp's, IP Sharp existed for? Because they were what, 64 yes. to... 87 is they ran about 20 yeah ran about 25 wow. years so there you go makes me think of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy <laughs> they went out for lunch and just never came back <laughs> <laughs> well maybe one of these days if uh, the ip sharp and associates london party uh ever comes back uh i'll have to fly out i'm not sure do like a raycast 
panelists? Do we get like, uh, you know, honorary invites? Maybe not. We'll have to see. Do you get plus ones? There'd probably be some form of an initiation involved, and I'm not sure I'd want to be involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> Having to get DOS box out and the old uh, Sharp APL Plus running and do some kind of computation. Well, I already have that all set up, so I'm ready to go. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, the announcements out of the way. Um, today we are doing uh, my favorite topic um, to talk about on these episodes, at least when we don't have guests, and that is, once again, tacit programming. And because we are in the holiday season, we thought we would, um, off the top of this episode, give you a holiday gift in the form of finally talking about the one, the only dyadic hook, which all the first three times we have, we're going to talk about this, we didn't have time for. So this time off the top of the episode, we're going to talk about it. I actually don't. We didn't talk about who's going to go. Are we going to let Jay, uh, you know, Bob, the Jay guy, uh, introduce it? Or are we going to let Adam just tear into it right away? Uh, you know, <laughs> what say the panel? <laughs> okay, Bob will go first, uh, and then we'll go from there. I'll, I'll, I'll at least, for, for those of you who are joining late, uh, a hook in Jay is uh, two verbs uh, juxtaposed to each other and enclosed in parentheses. And when you have, you can have a monadic hook, which has one argument, and that argument is to the right. And then you can have a dyadic hook, which has two arguments, and that means that the hook, the two verbs enclosed in parentheses, are inserted between the two arguments. So you have a right and a left argument. So when you have a monadic hook, and, and most people, I think, get the idea of a monadic hook. It's interesting because the left, the right argument gets copied over to the left. I don't think it actually gets copied, but it appears on the left. And the way the verbs work is the uh, right verb works on the right argument. And then the result of that becomes the right argument to the left verb and the left argument goes to the left verb. So um, essentially you're doing like a pre-processing on the right verb before uh, the left verb works on the original argument plus the processed argument. With a dyadic hook, you still have the two verbs in the middle, but instead of the verb being copied across, you have the right argument, sorry, the left argument is now not copied, it just comes in on its own to work on the left verb. And then the same thing happens with the right argument and the right verb. So the right argument goes to the right verb, gets processed, gets sent into the left verb, and then the left argument now is forms the other part of that. So that's how hooks work in J. And they are asymmetrical, which is why I like them. The same way I kind of like using a claw hammer if I'm trying to hammer nails and then take them back out again, because one side works one way and the other side works the other way. And that means that you have two functions, but you have to know which end to use. And so that's my explanation of uh, dyadic hooks. And Connor's looking very confused right now for... Well, so... so... I actually understand dyadic hooks, and then I got confused uh, while listening to that. So let's see if I can recap and people can correct. Maybe, maybe I don't. Uh, the hook is pretty simple, especially if you're coming from APL um, or somehow if you're coming from BQN. 
It's just a, a fork, a three train, where you've got your left and right. So you've got three verbs, binary one in the middle, and then sandwiched between two unary functions. And if you fix the left unary function or monadic function to identity, that's what a hook is. That's a monadic um, hook, yeah. That's a monadic hook. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a monadic hook. Uh, a dyadic hook, I thought was basically, it's the same. It's like a dyadic hook is like the APL uh, operator beside, or previously called compose as well. So all it does is it's a left function applied between the two arguments, but the right argument is pre-processed by the right function. Right, 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 right. If, if you think of a fork, a, a noun verb verb fork, so in, in J you're allowed to have the left argument be a noun, and then it basically just isn't processed. So you've got noun verb verb, and then say you have a monadic fork. If you think of it this way, take that noun and just pull it out outside the parentheses, and now you have a dyadic hook. Because it's going to process it the same way. Yeah, but that—that's the same. You could make it into a fork as well, uh, by saying it's the. You, you can't do that with verbs, though. Like you can't do that with the verb-verb-verb form. Well, if the if the right verb is uh, is just right, uh, this, whatever function it is on right, just com so it's applied to the right. It's the same. It's the same thing. So this is why I sort of got confused because when I was listening to what you said, I was picturing something different. But this actually, so I don't necessarily recommend going and listen to this episode because the last two ADSP episodes, my other podcast, we did live coding. The first one's in C++ and the second one's in BQN. And uh, rightfully so, we got a couple comments being like, you know, talking about, you know, your, your random stuff, personal life stuff, awesome. Talking about coding stuff, awesome. Live coding solutions on a podcast, how about no? Um, because even, I think for the BQN one, we barely describe the glyphs that we're working with and we're just sort of like excitedly coding and you hear us being excited about coding and probably have no idea what we're talking about. That being said, at one point in our final BQN solution, um, I won't explain the whole thing because I just finished how talking about walking through a, a Unicode symbol solution is, is not great. But there is a point where we are basically trying to construct a uh, IOTA sequence, but it's shifted. Um, so say you want numbers 5 to 10 uh, exclusive. So that's going to be you know IOTA 5 plus 5, basically. So 5 plus IOTA 5. Um, and... The way you did this in BQN or in APL is basically your plus is your binary operation that sits in the middle. And then you're going to have two arguments, a left argument and a right argument. Um, and this example was bad. So let's change it to 10 to 14. So it's actually you're starting at 10 or you're, you're, you're adding 10 and you're doing IOTA 5. Um, and let's assume this is zero indexed. You basically then want to, with your right argument, the 5, you want to go IO to 5 to get 0 to 4. And then once you've done that pre-processing, you want to do 10 plus the result of that. And the way you have to spell that is basically using the left and right, so the binary versions of identity. So you go left plus um, range, which is the equivalent of IOTA in BQN, composed with right. 
And so you basically have to add the composition operator and then a left and a right. And then I made some offhand remark because I didn't actually really know what the dyadic hook in J was. And I was like, I know that there's a dyadic hook thing in J and it may or may not be this, but potentially you can just go plus range, AKA plus iota. And that's exactly the pattern that you want, um, I think. And then I tested it out and it seemed to work. No, no, th this is right. This is right. But, but that also means, by the way, this is exactly the function that Steven brought up as his favorite tested thing. Um, but so in, a, in APL, you can use the jot, which is beside. So you would write plus jot iota. And I noticed that when I looked at your BKN solution saying, hmm, yeah, <laughs> it would be nice to have that operator there. So that was, well, so that's my question. Is, uh, is there a symbol for the dyadic hook? Like there's multiple ways typically to spell the B combinator, the B1 combinator, AKA um, sort of not forks, but like you can go the jot symbol in APL, or you can just put two monadic functions side by side and it's basically the same. We call it that top. Uh, yeah. Does J have a symbol for dyadic hook or is the only way to spell it uh, binary, unary with parentheses um, around it? I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. Yeah, no, the, the, it's the same ideas as the fork, which is three verbs together. When you put um, a combination of two verbs together and you put them within parentheses, that is the de definition of a hook. Now, with the new version of 903, you can, because now you can start doing tacit definitions of conjunctions and adverbs, I've seen people describe how you could do a hook using that, and it's, it's, it's more complicated than just putting two verbs together within parentheses. But that's what you do. The interesting thing is to get the same effect as APL with your combination of two verbs, all I need to do is put an at or an atop between those two verbs, and I get the same effect as you guys do. Yeah, well, I mean, we also have now at least having uh, a top operator in APL. So you can either write FG or you can write F atop G explicitly like this, tacit explicitly. Um, so are, is that saying, because I don't think there is, but maybe I miss, I, I don't know. There is a way to spell a dyadic hook in APL using a, a operator or no? But that in APL or in J? In APL. In APL, a dyadic hook is just F J, a G. It is? Yeah. And it's not, it's not the case in BQN? Uh, BQN has a uh, after operator, so you would write F after G. It's the same thing. Really? It's this little jot with a line to the side. Wow. So, so the actual functionality is really useful. Everybody's figured out a way to do it, but we've all figured out different ways to do it. Really? Yeah. It's, but it's, yeah, it's the same thing. If you want the full J functionality in the APL, you can write F jot G commute commute. Uh, that might it might sound silly to do commute commute because like you're swapping the right and left argument and then swapping them again. But the idea here is that if it's dyadic, it swaps them twice, so they go back to where they came from. If it's monadic, then the outer commute is actually a selfie. So it puts that's exactly expressing that idea that that Bob was was saying before that you take the right argument, this only argument, and also make it a left argument. And now you can commute them again because it doesn't matter that they're the same. So it doesn't matter that you swap them around. But I like that spelling much better because it's explicit about 
copying over the argument to the other side. I find it very odd that the same argument is used twice without being mentioned. So yeah, I must admit when I first learned about hooks in J, that was something that just bent my mind. I just went, wow, really? And you like you sort of feel like you're walking on quicksand. You don't know where the next pothole is because how does that happen? And then it turns out it does happen. And then once you know it's going to happen, it's very consistent. So you deal with it. But when you first find out that you're going to end up sometimes copying uh, your arguments and sometimes not, depending on whether it's a hook or a fork. Oh, Connor is making exploration faces right now. This is amazing. We can just... Exploration. I'm not sure if that's the word, but... Uh, it's a eureka kind of thing. I totally... I totally... I'll be honest. Uh, I've been a bad host. I, t I tuned out for the last like 60 seconds because I got so excited about the after thing in BQN. And so I tested it. It worked. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Because that thing that I not I totally I totally interrupted, but that thing where I spelled left binary uh, unary compose right, it's just so I was just like, if I ever design a language, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a single Unicode symbol to spell this operator. I'm not sure why they haven't done that already, and um, sure enough, it's already there. And I, I wasn't sure if I should comment on it on on, on Twitter for the. Oh, you but, definitely should have. Yeah, you but I didn't want to embarrass you. But now you brought it up, so you embarrass <laughs> me, bro. Oh, I. To the listener out there and to the panelists, anytime anyone ever wants to, uh, you know, embarrass me or make me look bad and the cost of it is I get to learn something, please, please do. Uh, I care so little about, you know, whatever is it, you know, did I give the suboptimal or optimal? It's like code reviews. You know, there's this tricky balance of giving code reviews without making people feel bad. When I get like a really sort of uh, what's the word like deep dive like you can do this better you can do this better blah 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 like it's the best because like there's no better form of like improving your ability as a as a developer than getting like really really good feedback which sometimes is like oh yeah maybe I should have known this already but like that lasts for about half of a second and that's overwhelmed by like oh my goodness look how much I'm about to learn um, if 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 you um I was hoping someone would but I figured out oh, like I probably, because I thought I tried all the operators, but it, clearly I didn't try after um, in BQN, that is. And uh, I guess I just assumed that, um, I don't know why I assumed APL wouldn't have it. Um, but anyways, back to... To take a really brief interlude from all our tacit discussion, your, your, your request to be embarrassed, I have to admit something that Adam and I were talking about earlier, is that Adam was on the orchard and people were asking, can we listen live and, and then ask questions? And I said, you know what would be really funny is we tell them all, we tell them all to wait till uh, 4.30 their time or wherever, UTC. And then at that point, we'll give them the, the connection and then they'll all show up, but we won't tell Connor. So partway through the show, we'd have all these people suddenly <laughs> pop into Zoom and start asking questions. And, and that we felt would embarrass you. So we didn't do it. But, you know. Oh, no. That, I mean, I would have just been confused. I don't know why I'd have been. I'd have been like, oh. I, I would have just assumed like a dialogue or, you know, Adam accidentally posted the link on some uh, some company uh, thing. Because we've had it before. Not in, not in, not in waves of people. But, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm so This is so awesome. I can't wait to tell Bryce. Um, I, you know, I said going forward, we're going to stop doing these live coding things. But this is... This is uh, this is so cool. Anyways, back to Diag Hook. I don't even know what I interrupted when I interrupted. Um, well, I think what we determined was that there, there are, are ways to do this in each of the languages. And Jay does it um, without um, an actual primitive. They do it by combining verbs. 
And then they do move their arguments around in interesting ways, which are asymmetric. Uh, APL has different ways of doing that. But I, I guess what it's, so one of the things that's the, that I heard is really strong arguments against forks versus hooks. And this is a really good point, is if you have three verbs together within uh, parentheses, you have a fork. You add a fourth verb to that, now you have a hook. And your arguments are going to act differently. And, and you can say, oh, well, I can probably keep track of the difference between three and four. And you can, but you've got to re realize it's going to change. But when you start to extend, because you can go many verbs, lengths, and, and then if it's uh, an odd number of verbs, it's going to be a fork. And if it's an even number of verbs, it's going to be a hook. I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's clear yet how pervasive this is. So one thing is when you're writing the code, but let's say you're reading somebody's code. So here's a criticism that some K people have against the J style, as they call it, uh, trains, which is this odd even pattern, right? So if you, so every other function beginning with number two from the right is always applied dyadically. Um, and the other functions or verbs are applied monadically if the whole derived function is is uh, applied monadically or dyadically if the whole function is applied dyadically. And so in order to, to read a train properly, you have to count. You have to always keep track of the parity of your carriages, basically. So you start at the right, and the rightmost function is applied to the argument or arguments. Right? The next one, put it on hold, put it on your mental stack. Then you go to the third one and apply it to the argument or arguments, and then you combine them with that function that's in between them. This is how the fork works. Fine. You Now, that's part of the function, and that's going to evaluate. But meanwhile, you continue to towards the left. Here's another function. This one is uh, number four. So you put that on hold, go to number five, apply it to the argument arguments, and take the result of that original thing you had on the right with this new result and apply it dyadically with number four. And, then, and so you proceed through the train and you can keep track of that. And then you reach the end of the train and either you will be at an odd number or at an even number. So in APL, if there is nothing more on the left, then the last function is applied monadically, even though it would have otherwise been in a dyadic position, um, but it has no left argument. In J, it's more consistent in the sense that it's in the it it should be dyadic and it will be dyadic because we're just going to take the right argument or the left argument if it's dyadic and put it there in that last slot. So it would like an identity function. Uh, so a left if it was dyadic and the right if it's monadic. With one catch. If this is the case that you need this tacit addition of another argument on the left, you need to backtrack if it's if it's applied dyadically, you need to backtrack all the way to the beginning and start reevaluation. Why? Because everything up until now was monadic, dyadic, monadic, dyadic, even though this train is applied dyadically. Okay, this is a lot of words. Let's see if we can, can cut it down a little bit. Meaning, you must read trains from the right. Otherwise, you don't know what the functions do because you don't know where they are in the parity game. However, if you read from the right, you don't know the meaning of the of the functions until you reach the left edge. So that basically means it's impossible for a human to read a long train in, in J 
you have you have once you have to do a two, a two pass first you you separate all the characters you have to parse everything you can't parse as you go along you have to parse everything and not evaluate it then you get to the end look at your parity and then you might may or may not go need well for evaluation you need to go back all the way to the beginning and start over there's no other way well there there is another way but it's it's outside of the way the language is actually working you can do it with documentation and the documentation is you always have the option to put parentheses around things and you can separate them that way if you want to make it clear to yourself that that's what's happening so for instance if you if you've got a hook you can always take your first verb or combination of verbs because that first thing can be a hook as well you can take that first verb and you put parentheses around it and if you do that consistently that will tell you if you see parentheses around the first verb you've got a hook and if you don't see that you've got a fork but but if you don't know whether the writer of this code uses such a convention consistently yeah you cannot rely on it if you see the parentheses sure yeah if you don't see the parentheses tough luck you can also do it with white space if you want to separate the two a bit more that'll be another tricker but you're right it, it has to do with the writer of the code it was something that actually i think bryce or uh, connor you and bryce talked about in adsp was he was saying at one point you were taking parentheses out and you were going, well, if you can read that, you can if you understand it. But if you don't understand it, sometimes you leave things in to make it easier for somebody else to read it. And I don't think there's, I, um, I think that's actually an intermediate form of documentation that I think is entirely valid and nobody should, should call it down. Because if it makes it easier for people to understand, I think it's probably worth doing. I, I I disagree. If you need if you need to put in redundant parentheses because it uh, because otherwise a human needs to do a double pass on your code to understand it must do a double pass. There's no other way. Then there's something wrong with this construct. Well, to take it back, the other the other area I look at is I don't usually uh, go more than about four or five um, verbs in a row in a train just because that's, that's kind of my limit on what I could actually parse and understand. And if I go more than that, then it starts to get confusing to me and I'm better to break those things up. Again, that's a, that's a programmer's choice. It's not the language that needs that. So in other words, what you're saying now is the language can, can push you to whatever level you want to, but as a programmer, you sort of have to realize your own limits and maybe your reader's limits. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a, uh, uh, affordance you allow is that you say, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a bit easier to understand because I'm a human being and I can I can only juggle four balls and not five balls. But isn't it isn't it even for the the interpreter itself? It also has to do two passes. No, there is no way. No, the interpreter when it's parsing, it goes through a stack of what is it four five stack and it, it's it's just going through a series of rules and pulling them off but, but you can you don't know how to apply the functions you don't know if if your if your star means multiplication or or sign until you finished parsing the entire train uh yeah but it's only one pass uh when you get to the end you know you're working through your stack first you have to parse the entire train yeah and then you can go back to the beginning and and apply it because otherwise you don't know which function to apply, monadic or dyadic. Yeah, 
you don't know whether this star means one or the other until you're finished parsing everything. Whereas in the APL style trains, you can start evaluation right away. Yeah, no, you're right. You have to parse before you evaluate. So you have to do two passes, one parsing pass yeah. and one evaluation pass. Whereas in APL and BQN, you can do a single pa a parse and evaluate at once. So as soon as you hit your first verb, you can then start yeah. processing it. There's no yeah. question about what it means. Yeah. And for me, that makes a world of a difference. So here's my, because I'm a, I'm a kind of a bit lost. Um, I get there's some ambiguity. To summarize, uh, and sort of I'm taking a guess when I summarize, you don't know at the end of a train in J whether your last uh, hook is going to be monadic, monadic or dyadic. Is that what the confusion is? And first, I don't know what you mean by first and last, but you don't know the one on the furthest left. The one on the furthest left determines whether or not the one on the furthest right is applied monadically or dyadically. Let's think of it like in terms of having four verbs in a line. So if you start with three verbs in a line, you would have the uh, rightmost and the uh, the one in the next, so let's let's order them one, two, three. Isn't three verbs in a line a fork? Yeah, so, that, so that's the contrast here. Let's call them P, P, Q, R, and S in that order, right? Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you've got Q, R, S, and the whole, we're only talking about dyadic. That's the problem here is with dyadic, right? So P, Q, R, S, and our, our, four, our four train, and Q, R, S, is our three train. Now, normally, APL is concatenative in, in that you can keep adding more things on the left, and everything to the right preserves its meaning. You just keep building your expression towards the left. So here, what's happening is with the QRS train, then S is applied between the left and right argument. Q is applied between the left and the right argument. And R is applied to their results. And then we proceed to the left if there's more. Now in PQRS, then because of the P, notice the P is further to the left. So, so according to normal APL reasoning, it should not affect anything towards its right. It takes everything on its right as its right argument. That's always the rule I teach people when I teach them APL. Every function takes as its right argument, everything on the right, as far as it can see bar it gets stopped by any parentheses or statement separators it's like that but as far as it can see it takes everything to the right and it's not true here because it would be in an apl train then p would just be applied to the result of qrs but here because of the presence of the p then despite the existence of a left argument s is applied monadically oh. it just ignores its left argument and p and q is also applied monadically it just ignores the left argument and there, the two monadic applications of Q and S, their results are then given as arguments to R. And the result of R is used as right argument for P. And then P uses the outer left argument as its left argument. So the presence of something on the left governed entirely the meaning of what's on the right, which is, in my opinion, not APLE. That's not how it works. And, and in J, what it's doing is it's going to parse, it's going to create your whole verb before it executes the verb. It has to do a two-pass. Yeah, well, I guess if you call it a two-pass, but it's, it's, it's parsing, and then it's executing, and that's, that's how it works. I want to throw in a question here. 
what you two are describing sounds like inviting squirrels to live in your brain. And my invitation to you both is to explain to our listeners uh, who are not acquainted with forks and trains and hooks, uh, the wonderful things that all this makes possible. Because at the moment, it's <laughs> I'm listening. Why would you want to do this? Well, so before before Adam goes, I will say that um, I've only ever I've only ever really looked at these like now that I know that BQN and APL have uh, a glyph for this. Like I'm 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 ecstatic. Uh, that's fantastic because of what we talked about earlier. Like I can delete three symbols in I believe a five symbol left binary unary compose right. Uh, I got rid of sixty percent of the characters in my five character expression. That is amazing. I love it. I love it. If I can get rid of a single character, that's fantastic. If I can get rid of 60% and three, whoo, it is a good day. Um, so I think that... Well, you, you had to add one, though. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, 40% still. So that's pretty good. Two characters. And also, too, it's just... It's so much less noisy. Like, it's 40% shorter, but you are reducing the ceremony and the noise around what I'm trying to do. And literally, it's just a composition pattern that after in BQN and Jot and APL... It does exactly what I want, and if I know that now, I can see it, and I don't have to build up this little fork with left and right and compose. That's way more difficult to parse, um, in my opinion. I think that's the key thing. is you're, It's not just golfing because you're reducing characters. You're actually doing it to make it more understandable because you're reducing the concepts you have to deal with. Yeah, ex exactly. That being said, my... Uh, the, clearly the, the issue here is not actually that the, the, this, this, uh, combinator, which I actually looked it up. It doesn't actually look there's like there is a bird that, um, specifically, uh, is used. It's a specialization, I think of dove, according to M Marshall Lockbaum's sort of birds table. Uh, so that's kind of sad, but, um, it's, I think the way that this is, this affects building up three trains and four trains and N trains. Um, and also the fact that, uh, J for their two trains chose uh, hooks and dyadic hooks, whereas for APL and the hook conjunction paper that we talked about uh, that Roger Huey initially wrote in 2006, he said, you know, it, it was probably a mistake to choose uh, hooks when you can very simply spell um, at least the monadic hook with the fork. Um, so that was always sort of what I thought the the, the drawback was. But now it seems, after listening to sort of Adam's explanation, that it's, it's even worse than that, that the way that we're used to reading things as APLers in like the APL sense, not just excluding J, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it changes things, um, which, yeah, I'd have to play around with it in J more. But yeah, that, that was sort of my response. But yes, we'll throw it now. Adam was about to say something until I interrupted him. <laughs> well, what was I about to say? Uh... Well, Stephen asks, you know, why? What's the point? Um, of oh, these? right, right, like, it right. It sounds yeah. like we're just we're having a squirrel party. You know, we've got maybe a couple squirrels already, but you you introduce these sort of parsing techniques, and now we've got a whole party of fourteen squirrels, and they're all just throwing acorns around, and uh, you know, help us, you know, <laughs> Lord help us in trying to figure out how to uh, you know read this J stuff. So, how do you respond, or how would we respond? You know, 
in defense of the hook. Um, so, so yeah, with all my attacking uh, the hook, let me defend the hook a bit on two parts, monadic and dyadic. So a while ago, uh, us panelists were asked to collect our favorite tested functions in preparation for an episode many tested episodes ago. And what I found was that a lot of these neat little tra um, three trains, forks, are actually hooks, meaning one of the outer two functions is an identity function. So you could say, well, it cuts down on the noise, right? And, and if you want to check whether something is a palindrome, then you can say the argument equals its reversal. Or you could just say equals its reversal. That's what a hook is. So a palindrome is something that equals its reverse. And in J, that's how you write it, equal reverse or match reverse. Um, by far the most such three trains that are useful are found to be when one side is an, uh, is an identity. And then when I write them in APL, I always have a dilemma. Which side should I put the identity on if the middle function is commutative? It should it be reversal is identical to uh, the identity, or should it be the identity is equivalent to the reversal? J never has this problem because you only you can only put the pre-processing function on the right. So I can totally see why there is room for such a thing, such a concept. And for the dyadic one, well, you look at it in 2021, and APL has these various uh, operators, combinators, and PQN has even more or a fuller set of them. But if we go back in time, Dialog APL, I think, was the uh, first APL, or, or at least mainstream APL, to add any kind of compositional operator. And that was the JOT. And it was just called Compose, because it was the only composition. No other compositions were, uh, were even considered, apparently. And it's very interesting in what's written about it that and, and this applies also to the, uh, the discussion of forks in the early days of uh, APL question mark, which was later named J, um, is that it's functionally complete somehow. There are things you can't really write, but for the most part, uh, you can write anything uh, using just this composition, the hook. And that's one of those combinators that have letters as well. Right? Yep. A starling. Yeah. And 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 so is there is there validity to this? Yes. It's complex in a way, it's uh it's asymmetric, but it's that asymmetry that allows you to express anything because you can move things over to the other side and then you can apply and you can move it back again. So I totally understand why you would want to add this as the most fundamental type of composition, the one that's assigned the privileged role of no symbol. It's kind of like a first class composition, the inherent composition, the tacit composition. All other compositions must necessarily be have a symbol to distinguish them. I just don't think it's justified. It's like you can build a computer from NAND or from NOR. Nevertheless, lots of programming languages don't have NAND or NOR because they're complex. They act in strange ways that you don't really think in those kind of ways. So you people tend to build up logics from and and or and not, even if they're not the most fundamental. 
The same thing here. The hook is maybe the most fundamental low level thing that everything else can be defined in terms of, but it's just not the tool of thought. Bob, do you want to add anything to Adam's defense of Jay's hook or dyadic hook, I should say? <laughs> um, I think the only thing I, I would add is, is in terms of the two passes, the parsing pass and the, and the execution pass, I don't think you're really, I don't think your parsing pass is really a significant time or space user. I mean, it's, 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 you're, 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 it's, you know, interpreted language. It's whatever that sentence is going to do is that's pass. It's going to happen pretty quick. And then you're going to get into execution and you're going to do what you're going to do what you want it to do. Um, but it, I suppose it is two passes, one to parse and one to execute. But I don't think the, the parsing pass is going to contribute very much to the, the whole process, the time it takes. Yeah. The one thing I'll add is that it's somewhat sad for me as, as now the listener knows that uh, I care a lot about the character count is that even in J with the hook, your spelling of is palindrome is still a character longer <laughs> because they have, what do they call them? Digraphs. So two symbol, two ASCII symbols. So it's, it's four characters, even though uh, the fork is technically more verbose, it requires three verbs in APL. They're all one symbol. So my, my reverse match uh, identity is is spelt with fewer characters than my pipe dot whatever hyphen colon hyphen colon yeah something yeah. like that yeah match match reverse yeah I, I, I switch those around yeah. even even then to apply it inline you have to put parentheses around the two train anyway and yep. uh, in apl if you wanted to use the hook form so the normal way to specify a tacit palindrome would be write tech match reverse mm -hmm. and then you have to put parentheses around that but if you do it inline you can actually write match jot reverse selfie so match beside reversal commute why do you have to do selfie because in apl you have to be explicit about using the same argument also as left argument to match oh same reason you have to do double commute when, if you were trying to cover both cases. Right. So think about it, match, so match jot reverse. So the jot here is pre-processing the right argument to the match, right? So what we're matching is, we're matching the argument race car with race car. The only thing is we want to reverse the right argument to match before we do the match. So what you do is you say, I want match selfie. Right? It should match itself. Only right before we do that match, let's pre-process the right argument with reverse. So we do match after reversal selfie. That's why it's called after in BQM. And it can also be called beside because they just happen as if they were written out straight. It would be like race car match reverse race car. So they're beside each other. So in so the whole foot the application of a tacit palindrome checker in the APL is still only four characters. Oh, interesting. So I've just, yeah, I've always known about the B1 combinator, AKA the Blackbird, which is unary binary, which is jot, double dot, whatever the paw in APL. And this is binary unary. Yeah. Yes. Which is just jot, but you have to turn it into dyadic. And I like the fact that you have to be explicit about it. Yep. That this, that frown 
tilde deresis is being explicit about the fact that I'm going to use this argument twice. Interesting. So that, and that means that in the unary case or the monadic case of both jot, which is a little circle in APL, and uh, rank, which is the little circle with two dots, they're both the B combinator, which is just unary function composition. But their dyadic versions go to two different combinators. So for the rank one, it's the B1 combinator, um, a.k.a. performing a binary operation followed by a unary operation. And for jot, it's the hook, the dyadic hook, where you're performing a unary operation followed by a binary operation. So I was staring at this with the match jot uh, reverse, and what I was thinking was, how come this is not the B1 combinator, which would be basically, instead of it being a reverse, it would be a one rotate on your string. Um, so I have ADA, ADA, so it would be a one rotate, which would give you DAA, and then your uh, match would actually be tally. So you'd get three. Um, and I'm pretty sure... Actually, no, it's not a one rotate. What is... Because one's the result. What is eta... That doesn't actually make sense. Eta rotated by eta doesn't give you anything. So if we replace this with... Yeah, it's just going to give you a domain error. Okay, forget what I just said. Um, but anyways, I'm not sure if the listener got that. We've got something in... The chat here. Well, I'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but it, it's a, there's an APL wiki page with some nice diagrams. So Dialog APL has, as of speaking, three compositional, pure compositional operators that we call a top, beside, and over. And there's a nice diagram in the APL wiki that shows their relationship. And you can also then understand why they all are exhibiting the same behavior when applied monadically. It's only the adic form is different. And this also explains why that symbol is used. So the jot symbol uh, comes from mathematics, where you have f jot g, that's function composition. The thing is, the mathematics only really considers f of x as a single argument. There's, there's very little of these infix operations in, in traditional mathematics. But as soon as you add a left argument, then the possibilities of combining them in various ways uh, kind of explode. There are a lot of different possibilities. Um, and so Dialog has these three different ways of doing it. And BQN adds one more, which is just a reversed mirror image of, of them. But there are actually more, even, even more. It's too bad. I actually don't like these diagrams because I was confused at first. And what, what I really think it needs is it needs the little gray boxes to not be gray. So what the diagrams for the listener are showing is basically you've got F and G, which for across a top, a side, and over, some of them, sometimes they're binary functions, sometimes they're unary functions, depending on which one it is. But it's always, it shows the argument boxes where you pass your arguments to as gray. In my opinion, they should be colored like blue for binary and like red for unary, because then it would pop out immediately that your binary function is the first thing that gets evaluated for a top, aka the B1 combinator, 
And for the two other ones, it's the last thing that gets evaluated. Oh, but then you're missing one thing, Connor. Um, Notice that one of, in every case, one of the two legs, so to say, uh, is dotted, not solid. And what that means is that when this composition is used monadically, that entire leg disappears. And so too, its gray box disappears. So for example, in the top case with G, you wouldn't be able to color G blue or red or whatever to show it's monadic or dyadic. It depends. It depends if there's a left leg or not. If it's a left leg, then G is dyadic. If there's no left leg, then G is dyadic. That's how it works. F is always monadic. What make, might make the diagram clearer is if the boxes that were dependent on being dyadic or monadic, which is the left boxes, were cross-hatched instead of just a solid that gray. Could work, yeah. So that you knew that they disappeared as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I know there's an alternative version of this that is fuller, that uh, Marshall Lockbaum, or at least that's where I've seen it. Uh, he gave a talk at Dialogue 18 or 19 um, where he was introducing operators in one of the Dialogue versions. And he had that diagram where I think it's like a three by two or four by two. And I think he has the monadic and dyadic version separate, which I still do think that's an overwhelming slide, but I like it better because it like, it's very unclear from this diagram that sure it says underneath when they're applied monadically, the dotted branch falls away, but you have to visually move each of these in order to show that um, each of them are identical in the monadic case. Like just by just by erasing the dotted X because they all are different, or the dotted arrow from, that's going from X, which is the second argument. Um, when you erase those, if you just like take a little eraser in your paint program, you have three entirely different. They look different, even though they're the same. You have to like you have to do a little morph animation mentally in your head to make them look identical. Um, and that I think is completely obfuscated by, by this diagram. Um, and actually I didn't even, I didn't even, and that's, a, here's a good question or is it a good question? I don't know. Here's a question. You can let me know if it's good or not. Uh, is it confusing that for each of these, a top beside an over, um, an over is the psi combinator. So it's a, a top B1 combinator over psi combinator and beside doesn't have a combinator in the dyadic case. Um, but all in the monadic case, all of these are the B combinator, just unary function composition. Is that is that good? Is that a mistake? What's the is there utility in that? In that like you can build up some uh, small expression that is useful both monadically and dyadically depending on the combinator that you use. Because most of the times, I think in my programming, whenever I'm building these up, it's intended to either be used just monadically or just dyadically. Um, and so if that's the case, having three different combinators that in the monadic case all do the exact same thing seems a bit, seems a bit confusing. But like potentially there's some utility there, though, that I just haven't discovered yet. Like I never use over the psi combinator. I never use that monadically. The only time I ever use that is when I want to use it dyadically. Well, I mean, um, obviously, if you know whether you're going to use it monadically or dyadically, then... Yeah, go for a top because that's the most natural one uh, because it always does the same thing, kind of. Uh, it applies one function as post-processing to the other function's uh, result. However, I think there are cases. Beside, maybe not so much. 
uh, that's the one that's the the oddest. That's the hook. That's the one that <laughs> that's problematic, right? Uh, where there's little relationship between the monadic and the dyadic form. For a top, definitely, and as you said, we don't have to address that. For over, the idea is simply you can take one argument or two arguments, pre-process all arguments before you do your further work. Mm. Okay, so here's an example. Let's say we want to find the, uh, the differences of the absolute values. Right? So then you could write that, that as minus over absolute value or magnitude. Yeah, but monadically, your minus is going to become negate. Ah, but that's exactly the same, right? Because that's just minus with a zero as default left argument. Mm, I don't know. So if you only give it one argument, it does say the distance from zero from the origin to the absolute value of the argument. And if you give... Is there a better example where it's not negate? Because I, I, think, I think it's debatable that like... Or, or I think that's the thing is all of these in the monadic cases where you've defined some dyadic case, you're going to implicitly be assuming like, you know, division and reciprocal. I agree. Those make sense for like monadic dyadic. But when you're building up that dyadic version of something where you want to take the ratio is in the monadic case when you're given five do you want 20 percent? like do you want 0 0.2 like i i i i understand that reciprocal is a great one over is a great monadic case for the dyadic division but if i'm building up some expression inserting some default uh for the monadic version of a dyadic uh expression built up using the over or the psi combinator mm. That's a bit of a stretch. That's a bit of a stretch for me. It depends. It depends on the left function being uh, meaningfully ambivalent. Right? If if the for over the left function has to be meaningfully ambivalent, otherwise there's no point going here. For a top, the right function has to be meaningfully ambivalent. For beside, the left function also has to be meaningfully ambivalent. But it's a matter of like taking a default left argument or not kind of thing. Yeah. At first, when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But in my head, I was actually thinking you're taking either your left and right arguments or just a list of arguments, pre-processing them, and then it's followed by a monadic function. But that's actually not the case here. It's you're pre-processing pre both of either your single or both of your arguments and then either applying the monadic or the dyadic uh, definition of your glyph, which is, I guess that's what my whole thing is. Is like, I don't, I don't see necessarily the use, like, I guess I need to see a couple use cases that were like, oh yeah, this is definitely what you would want to do. Um, but maybe I'm not at, I haven't like gotten to the right point free level in my black belt journey of becoming like a triple black belt. And like, at some point you're like, oh, there's a bunch of cases where you want to definitely define these functions um, such that they can be used either monadically or dyadically. And there's a, there's a ton of those cases that exist. I just haven't started thinking that way. So here, here is, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a, of a stretch of it, but one really useful, I think, use of, of over is with the new, uh, relatively new quad C system function, which is case folding. Uh, or it can be used with a left argument and then it's case mapping. So for example, you can do match over case fold, 
that is equivalent of case insensitive matching. Or you can do dyadic iota, that's a lookup over quad C. So that, that, that's a case insensitive uh, lookup or membership over quad C. That's a case insensitive membership. Okay. So let's say that you have some HTML building function as the left function to over. It builds and uh, it, it returns an HTML tag and it takes as right argument some content for that tag. And it can take as left argument optionally a class that it's going to add to that to the HTML that it generates. But you don't have to give it a class because you could make a, a tag that doesn't have uh, it doesn't have classes. Um, and for sanity, you want to be able to feed it any type of text as arguments, but it should lowercase everything before generating anything. So here you have HTML tag over quad C. Okay. If you give it just some content on the right, then it will lowercase that content and stick it into the tag and spit that out. If you give it a, a left argument, it will lowercase that left argument, use it as the class, and generate the HTML tag and spit it out. So what was the monadic and dyadic versions of your? So the, the without the over, it would just be a, a function called HTML tag. It takes the content of the tag on the right, and optionally, a class name on the left, and then it generates the HTML tag. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Maybe even, maybe even better, better than case folding. Actually, better example would be HTML escape. So you would say HTML tag over HTML escape. Yeah. So it makes sure to escape all the content and escape the optional class name, so that you don't end up in any trouble. And then it generates the HTML tag. If you don't give it any class on the left, it's just a top. It's HTML tag, a top HTML escape. So the pattern here is that your left argument that is going to turn your function into dyadic is a kind of optional parameter that you're specifying, which in a way, eh, no, it is, it is slightly different than sort of um, zero minus or one division. Um, well, I, th I think it's it's a kind of common pattern, and APLers, experienced APLers, would tend to program in this pattern where the left argument bound with the function is a meaningful construct. So you, the right argument is the main data, and the left argument is the parameter. And and that is actually the reason why BQN uses W and X for its arguments, where X is like the main argument and W is what's to the left of X in the alphabet. And it's like the parameters, uh, the width, whatever you might set up and as left. That's where you have this everywhere in the APL as primitives. Take, left argument is how much to take, right argument is the data to take from. Rotate, left argument is how much to rotate, right argument is the data being rotated. Transpose, left argument is where you want these axes to be mapped to. Right argument is the data that needs to be shuffled around. And when APLs write functions, they will also write functions like this, where the main data goes on the right and the parameters go on the left. Yeah, in your example, though, it was sort of, um, I can see where there's a little bit more utility there because an optional parameter is different than, uh, you know, 
a parameter that's going to completely change the meaning, like reverse and rotate, right? Like reverse is different than rotate. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so if, if you've got just a function, like I'm trying to think of a really good example. Um, I'm sure there's one with like execute where you're given strings, either one string or two strings. And the second string is just, you know, uh, or so, so, you know, uh, that's a bad example, but like, but, potentially like if you've got your last name like you know uh you know smith comma and then your first name's bob you could do a catenate over execute and that will turn your string or actually no this is not what you want because you want the strings to be numbers anyways there's some example where like you can turn your strings into numeric values and then maybe you just want to turn those into a list of numbers. Once again, a bad example, because you can just execute <laughs> a list of numbers, which I discovered recently. Someone commented on a video where I had a, a, uh, a, a, I was parsing from an advent of code, a comma separated list of numbers. And um, I had like, you know, split on the commas and then, you know, done a bunch of stuff. And then they were just like, hold my beer. Uh, because comma separated numbers, that's like a, you know, number catenate, number catenate, you can just execute the whole thing. And I was like, oh my goodness. I turned like a 10 line expression into a, a like a one line exp- or a, one, a 10 character into a one character. That was, that was the best. Um, so I'll promise now in the podcast, so then I have to get around to it, that this week I'll publish a video on YouTube on, uh, with some tips as to parsing those kind of text data files. Because I've been seeing lately uh, during December, people doing all strange things we execute and i i fiercely dislike evaluating stuff that you download from online without inspecting it first there are better ways to do this um so oh i'll chime in on that too oh, we've been tracking the advent of code competition this year it's very good for vectors and i'm um, just publishing a wrap-up of the first week and each each day shows you how to ingest from the from the text file yeah it's definitely one of the one of the trickier parts that i think that would be very useful um even even i think in one of the videos one of the problem i have only done the first four but the fourth one is super super fun it's like a bingo game and it lends itself extremely well to um array languages as does the very first problem but the the fourth one it's a little bit more involved and you have to do some row wise and column wise stuff but like parsing the boards come like pretty nicely formatted and i thought oh this should be pretty simple and i ended up you know spending i think 15 or 20 minutes having to like deshape and reshape and a bunch of stuff and i i knew that like there's probably a much better way to do this but like I just wanted to get through the parsing part and get to like the fun part because parsing's not fun. Like it's it's honestly why a lot of people, including myself, give up on Advent of Code like at a certain point because it's it becomes like that's the kind of joke about Advent of Code is everyone writes it in their favorite language and ends up solving it in regex um, <laughs> because because it's always just this like you know parse, parsing problem rather than sort of like an algorithm problem. Um, Turn them into vectors. That's the key for key for the bingo boards. Turn them into vectors. Yeah, they're five by five vec, uh, matrices, but for for manipulating them and, do, and doing all your problem solving, they're much more tractable as vectors. And when you want to test to see whether a board is be, is being solved, you just five five reshape them. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward. We're gonna we'll have to yeah include uh, links in the show notes and I'll put the I'll, I'll put the links. I'll be looking forward to to reading that. Um, 
So I've got a I've got a question, and that's in APL. Um, are you able to actually define the behavior of monadic or dyadic if you're explicitly defining a verb? You can in J. Yes. Yeah. So there are a couple of different ways to do it, and and it depends also on your function styles. We have a couple of different function styles, um, but. At the very most extreme level, you can just check whether there is a left argument or not. Yeah. And then branch there by whatever means or whatever function type you're doing. But the real cool thing is when you there's a the syntax for for in APL, in dialog APL and some other APLs called the defense syntax. Um, and normally in APL, you do assignments with name and then left arrow and then a value. But there's a little thing there that the left argument in such a lambda or defen is called alpha. And if you and normally you're not allowed to assign to these special names, but if you try to assign alpha gets some value, then that whole statement is recognized and is simply skipped if there is a left argument. But it's evaluated if there's no left argument. And this allows you to set default left arguments in a really neat way. You just say, alpha gets whatever left default left argument, and then you continue everything. And there is an even cooler trick, which is there's no restrictions on the name class, or as you say, the role that the left that alpha has. So if it hasn't been defined, you can even assign it a function. Okay. So let's say we wanted to write a cover function for minus. So we could begin with saying, okay, alpha gets zero. And the next statement, we say alpha minus omega. You could also define it as alpha gets identity as the function identity. And next statement, it says alpha minus omega. So what happens now is if there's no left argument, alpha becomes the identity function. Next statement, we have the negation of the right argument. And then we apply the left argument. The, the the alpha to that which is a function which is identity and so it is negate omega so these two different ways to do it and sometimes you can write some really cool code where you could either use a function or uh, even an operator as the value default value for alpha and it can then go and do something special and and that's where it's, when it gets really fun writing ambivalent functions where where you can share code but then it takes two different pathways, depending on whether alpha is the value that Kanye came in or alpha is whatever it got set to when you came into the function. Yeah, and so I guess, you know, as a programmer, having that power of defining what you're going to do, you can do it within the definition of your, of your function as to what you want it to do, whether it's going to be monadic or dyadic. You have that level of control. So when you were talking about well, you won't know until you know until you know whether you've got one um, uh, one argument or two arguments how it's going to react. You can define how it's going to react, given on what it's going to give. You won't know how it will react until you know whether you have one or two. But you can define what it will do when it has one or two. Right, but th this this way of giving the left argument, so to say, a function value, this allows you to to take advantage of the pairings of primitives, the monadic dyadic pairing of primitives. So you can have all this code that's ambivalent, which means, I mean, it's kind of tricky. The reader would have to, to 
do probably two passes on it, reading it, saying, okay, if this is being applied magnetically, this is what it's going to do. But if it's being applied magnetically, that's going what it's going to do. But it's very different from my criticism of the J-hook, right? because at the time of application, you know exactly what you're going to get. You don't have to, to look up anything in advance. Well, yeah, that's kind of the same as J, except that we're saying, you're saying at the time of application, it would be at J's point of execution. It knows what it's doing. The difference being, if you program that way, now you're asking it to do essentially a parsing before it can do the application. Right. Which I think, I think APL's interpreter does the parsing as well, but the human reader doesn't have to do it. The important part here is if you see it inline, if you see this function inline, you can start from the right immediately evaluating an APL train, which you cannot do in J because you have to count first. Whereas here with it with the lambda that's saying, okay, the left default left argument. Well, do I have a left argument? Do I not have a left argument? If so, when I'm reading, I just okay, uh, there's a left argument in this place, so I just ignore that statement. And that's what comes into play when you have a defund and you have a function as your left argument. The alpha to a function, yeah. Yeah, well, it's not really a function as left argument, but you you set the alpha to its function value. So I can see in in Apple Card, which is my collection of stuff in APL. Uh, it, I have 17, yeah, 16, I guess, entries where I have used uh, this alpha gets something. And in by far most of them, it's being set to, to a non-array, meaning usually to the identity function. And, and sometimes to a complex statement and some, sometimes just to a simple thing like one. So, dyadic hooks. All right. <laughs> yeah, dyadic hooks. Turns out every language has got them. Well, not every language. Uh, J, APL, uh, BQN. I, does Python have them? Every language should have them. <laughs> no, Python. I mean, I'm sure Python, you could write some little library with all of these. I've seen some crazy things done in Python. Um, oh, but it, it's dyadic hook. It's very simple, right? So in a functional language, <laughs> yeah, who am I to say that, right? Who are you? Uh, um, it, it's very simple. In, in a functional language, so you take two function arguments, right? And then, and then you return a function that takes two arguments. It applies one function to one of the arguments, and then it applies the other function between the one argument and the result of that first function application and done. You can definitely define the hook in any functional language. Yep. I want you to put that at the front of the episode, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that I think is, uh, yeah, I learned a lot. This was great. Um, dyadic hooks, they're everywhere. Um, after and BQN, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. And now I comprehensively understand a top, aside and over. Is there a good reason why all the monadic ones are the B combinator? Mm, the jury's still out. Um, but I think we'll have an update in a year or something when I'm, what I'm, oh yeah, I guess I'm technically like two AP year, two APL years old now. December 9th, I sort of consider my APL birthday um, because that's when I really started to fall down the rabbit hole. And uh, so, yeah, maybe when I'm three APL years old, we can come back and I'll see if um, I'll see if the, I've discovered the, the, the truth 
behind um, the monetic definitions being the same. But yes, Diana Cook, I hope I hope this is everything the listener uh, wished for during the, the seasonal seasonal holidays in terms of uh, holiday gifts. I think we've we've covered this. What if we've been talking for more than an hour here? So uh, uh, I think the Diana Cook has probably gotten more attention than any other <laughs> than any other um, combinator or train. Um, anything else we want to we want to wrap up the holiday special episode with um as always contact at arraycast.com if you want to send an email we certainly uh respond to them and we've had some interesting emails i forgot to mention off the beginning oliver mooney put together a uh, for a closure group he put together an introduction to jay so if people are interested it was actually pretty good it's about a half hour long and he, i think he does a good job of it he's not trying to overwhelm his listener he's um and he, he's showing it's a video so he's showing stuff and um it's a good way to um i guess if you don't know the language you can at least see the sort of things it can do if you're familiar with array languages a lot of it's not going to come as much of a surprise but if you aren't it might be a good way just to look at stuff and i mean there's so many other ways i mean the the apl wiki and adam can add the different areas that he's he's done that are good for beginners. There's a lot of different ways to catch on if you're if you're interested. If you want to fall down that rabbit hole, there's lots of opportunities to fall down that rabbit hole. And this is on YouTube, I assume the recording or. Yep. Awesome. Yep. We'll put a link up. Oh, and actually, show notes. We always put the links up. So if people want to go to show notes, we'll have links <laughs> trying to explain all the things and the diagrams and the dotted lines. And there should be hashtags here. All of that. All that will be. Yeah, we'll we'll put that we stuff. Sh- in. We should say. So Stephen has a website too. Is it five jtcom Because every single time I want to go to that, uh, you have the blog that you recently wrote on tacit expressions and sort of evaluating it. Every single time, I think it was like three times until I finally remembered the the URL of your website, I would search and I would search your name and I'd go KX and K and then I'd be like, screw it. And then I would just go to the show notes of the third tacit episode <laughs> where we would have a link. And that was that was the fastest way to get to Stephen's blog. Um, and I, I could never remember. It was 5JT. And for some reason, I, I was always trying to put an S in there. I don't know why. Well, it should have been an S. I just never fast enough to claim these things uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's still i mean a three a three character url is still pretty impressive uh uh given how you know you search for basically anything these days whether it's a, U- a website or a twitter handle they all seem to be gone um but yes show notes for everything including 5jt.com and uh everything we mentioned will be in the show notes and i guess with that we will say happy holidays and happy array programming happy, happy holidays, holidays and happy, happy array programming, programming.